if you're a performer, particularly a live performer, particularly someone who say like storytelling or, or spoken word or, or cabaret for that matter, who walks into a space where you don't have any control of the aesthetics of a space, the one thing that you do have control over is how you present yourself and the content that you have through right. what you, how you move, through what you say. And you are effectively asking an audience to stare at you. I mean, yes, there's other things going on. They're listening to what you're saying. They're being taken in by images that you're evoking. But they're also just looking at you for 5 or 10 or 25 right. or 30 minutes. And every single part of you becomes part of the art you're constructing in that moment. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Paula. Hello Paula. Hey Dave. (laughs) So the first question that I always ask people is how do you know me? How do I know you? I... I know you, I'm trying to think of, I'm not entirely sure about the very, very, very first time I met you, but I think I know you from Spark at the Hackney Attic. Yeah, I reckon. I'm pretty sure, yeah, I came to that, and I don't know if I told a story the first time around, but I think that's the first time I met you. Yeah, I think Sparks probably is is where we met, but but it, it took me a while to work out that you were the same person that I'd met at Spark, because... Sparks a true storytelling night where it's just members of the public. Sometimes those members of the public are performers coming down to try out stuff, but it sometimes takes me a little bit of time to work out that you know that this that this person is also this person that I'm meeting in another sphere. So yeah, so we met at Spark, but we've also kind of met through the Free Fringe and uh, the spoken word scene and various different ways that we've sort of come into each other's radar, I guess. I've always enjoyed the stories that you've told at Spark, obviously, but I've, I've also really enjoyed your work that I've seen. The, the social network, I think. Uh, the anti-social The anti-social network, network of course. <laughs> Classic era. Was, I think, the first sort of full thing I saw of yours, and I, I really enjoyed that. So I guess that gives us people an idea of how we know each other. The second question that I ask people is, what do you do now? What do I do now? Other than have interviews in my living room. <laughs> um is that a way of saying how do I define myself? Maybe it, it may be that way. Yeah, Could it's, it be? it's whatever you want, really. It's the awkward question that you get at a party. But I didn't want to make it what do you do for a living, so I want it to be open. I want it to be what you know. What do you do now? Funnily enough, like my least favorite question in the world is is what do you do? So yeah. I appreciate that you found a way to ask it and not ask it at the yeah. same time. I I think currently what I just say is I'm an artist and. I'm an artist who works through many different disciplines. So right. sometimes that's film, sometimes that's performance, sometimes that's theater, and sometimes that's forms that combine all three. Right. I mean, I'm in a similar sort of position to you in terms of trying to define myself. Like at the moment, I say I'm a storyteller, and that means telling stories in loads of different mediums and all that. And it's good to find a, a catch-all term initially, but then you still have to explain it every time, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah it's weird because I I don't know because I did this masters in performance two years ago I started calling myself a performance maker but then that only really works with other people who are familiar with that term and then performance artists I also use sometimes but it can sound a bit pretentious and for some reason whenever I say 
I'm a performance artist or I'm a performer. People seem to connect that with dance. I don't really know why. And then right. I end up having to say, oh, I'm a storyteller. And then it's like, well, what do you mean by that? And so, yeah, so artists. Artists is just like nice yeah. and clean. And I guess the other half of what I do is I put on events, which includes curating events, producing events. And I also facilitate writing and performance workshops. But yeah. everything is through this this lens of storytelling, actually, in a way. It's yeah. just, am I helping other people tell stories? Am I telling my own stories? And what medium am I telling those stories right. with? And the way the way you tell stories as well is, is you you are very much a, a mixed medium kind of media and medium kind of person in that I mean I guess I, I do quite a lot of different things but I feel like you, you you engage much more with the visual arts as well as like spoken stuff and all of those things like combining them all together which is really interesting I mean like how did you become an artist when why did you decide to be an artist I feel like I didn't really decide to be an artist I think it's just <laughs> I was always. I was always creative. And then initially what I thought is I, I wanted to be a theater director. Right. Um, I was really active in the drama department in my high school. I wasn't that interested in most other subjects in my high school and managed to get a lot of hands-on experience, stage managing and set designing and sort of everything to do with being backstage, basically. Right. So through that, I managed to get into to RADA on their stage management course. Oh, wicked. And my big plan was I was going to work as a stage manager, which was like a proper paid job. And through that, work closely to directors and then eventually become a theater director. That was like my model. And then I, and then I went to RADA, which was brilliant. But it, it completely made me fall in love with, with theater. And I really hated stage managing. So I had to <laughs> kind of go, oh no, what am I going to do? And at the very, very end, there was this module in television production it was just like it was barely even a term and then I thought oh no this is this is the thing so I went to film school and subsequently graduating from film school realized that now all I could do was basically be a runner and hopefully one day maybe make my own films so I decided fuck that just gonna make my own films and then I'll never make money from it but that's I'm never gonna make money from it anyways and so I did that I had random book jobs I worked in a bookshop, I was a bartender, and meanwhile I made films, made films, made films. And then I managed to get a job in an animation company through film school trends and through like free work that I'd done on the side. And suddenly I found myself production coordinating for this like huge global animation company, um, mainly looking after, funnily enough, the scripts and the voice recording and all the audio elements of shows for the 7 to 12 boys action adventure market. <laughs> right. I did that for a few years until I was completely bored of that because it was basically became just the same job every day ad infantum. So I cut my losses and I went to Berlin to get back in touch with what I wanted to do with myself as an artist and to work on a documentary for six months. And it was through being in Berlin that I started being invited to do voice related things. I, first, someone wanted me to do a voice track for some electronic music track, then someone wanted me to do like the documentary narration for a film that they made. A bunch of people wanted me to be in short films and music videos. And suddenly I found myself performing and I completely fell in love with it and I haven't really looked right. back. So I guess the reason that I now make work that is involving all these different forms is I've come through all these forms right. and I've tried to kind of fit cleanly into each of them, including spoken word, which also, in a way, hasn't worked out because I realized I absolutely couldn't bring in film and music and props and staging into that 
arena. It was really set up for that. So now I'm just at home with the idea that I make work and the form it takes just depends on the project and what I feel suits that idea. Right. Yeah, I, I need to get at home with that too because that's basically how I am apart from, like I say, I think you've got like, I don't know, one of the things I, I was surprised about when you were telling me that is, I, I, I don't know, for some reason in my mind I assumed that you'd been to like a fashion school or something at some point because you like have really dif- distinctive uh, clothing sense and the way that you dress and the way that you construct like the image of you on stage is always really, really like precise and, and, and so I, I figured that you've been there but I guess that kind of maybe comes from stage production. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think when I started performing, I... I constructed an identity for myself when I made the decision that I wanted to perform, not when I was doing bits for other people. And so I, I actually, I created myself effectively. I created the identity of what I wanted to be as a stage persona. And that enabled me to perform because before that performing is something I never would have considered. I, I didn't think it was something I could do. I didn't feel brave enough, but I realized if I could, if I could create this persona to embody my stage self, then that self was totally comp performing because that's just what, what she she did. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I'm always someone who, who likes dressing up and whatnot, but I think thinking about that so much within the realm of how I present myself performatively had to do with, yeah, it was a, it was a way of enabling myself to, to perform. Yeah. I mean, I've had a sort of similar, I think a similar feeling about like how I present myself on stage, like uh, fashion wise, if you like, like as a, as a, as a, as a guy, I guess it's, it, it's, it's taken me a lot longer to like ex- accept that I'm interested in that thing because it's like, everybody says like that's vanity and everybody says that not only is it vanity, it's not even a vanity that men are supposed to have. So it's, 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 it's taken me a while to get into like uh, designing my look for the stage I mean although weirdly I think I've always had that when I've been in bands I've always had that when I've been like front man for a band or whatever but I never really applied it to the idea of like getting up on stage and trying to find a visual like a, a visual look for when I'm doing performance stuff that's on my own uh, and it's really helped to find that I think it's really made me feel like I'm more in touch with myself in a weird way even though it's about designing something it's it's kind of designing something that comes from within so it feels like really yeah I really like doing it so yeah I guess that's one of the reasons that I notice it in you because I'm so immersed in that way of thinking myself even if if every time I say it out loud like now I feel kind of ashamed <laughs> you don't feel ashamed <laughs> well, you feel silly about it yeah it's weird isn't it to say like um you know I'm, I, in my head I've just got all of these people who I know will be like you know you shouldn't like care about image images you know that's shallow like this idea of of, of of visual arts being shallow I guess is one that is problematic it's not true and I think uh, the other thing is if you're um if you're a performer particularly a live performer particularly someone who say like uh, storytelling or or spoken word or, or cabaret for that matter who walks into a space where you don't have any control of the aesthetics of a space the one thing that you do have control over is how you present yourself and the content that you have through right. what you, how you move through what you say and you are effectively asking an audience to stare at you i mean yes there's other things going on they're listening to what you're saying they're being taken in by images that you're evoking but they're also just looking at you for five or ten or 25 right. or 30 minutes and every single part of you becomes part of the art you're constructing in that moment so I think it's actually crazy not to consider it because right. 
if you don't consider it, there are other signals and messages that you're transmitting along with your story, along with, with this image that you're not even thinking about. Well, I think the few, audience is yeah, definitely paying right, attention exactly. to. And I think very few serious artists, if you like, although that's a problematic word in itself, don't think about it. But I think very few of them admit it. Like there's a lot of like people thinking about these. Everyone's trying to look effortless, aren't they? They're trying to look like, this is how I naturally am, rather than like a constructed thing. But I think the way we are naturally are is constructed. Like we construct ourselves and the world constructs us too. So looking at the kind of projects that you're doing in your art at the moment, I was looking through them before we started this this conversation because you sent over a kind of secret link to a to your current website and one of the things that sort of I guess this conversation we're having now leads into is your your project called How I Became Myself by Becoming Someone Else because that's about identity and creating yourself right um, so what is that project and, and yeah what is that project? So the beginning of my journey as a performance artist started with me as I said creating this persona and giving this persona a name and at the beginning it was kind of it was kind of a game I didn't really know anything about method or anything, but it's like, if I create this persona and I have this other name, what happens if I go into the space and, and I'm just, I am that person from that point. I tell my friends who come, you're going to call me this, et cetera, et cetera. And I live under this identity. And then what happened was as I got so taken into performing and that became what I did and who I was, I also became very, very attached to this, to this name. So subsequently, I, I changed it. I haven't changed it legally completely. I've, I've changed my middle name. But the funny thing was, suddenly the best story I felt I had as a storyteller was this story of, of reconstructing myself. Right. But it was the one story I felt that I couldn't tell because if I told it, then it would kind of undo the power of this persona that, that I created. But I think, I think what happened when I, I had this call for, for new work from Chelsea Theatre a year ago, and I realized that I had finally reached a point where I'd been then making work for five years or something, and, you know, and I am Paul Varjek to basically everyone I know now. More people know me as Paul Varjek than the name I was born with. Right. So I could tell this story, and it, it would just live in the world that I had created with this with this identity and this new version of myself. Right. And so the show is me kind of going through this journey that I've made to get to this point to figure out how I got there, why I got there, and how it affected those close to me along the way. And I, I call it a performed documentary, which is a practice I'm kind of still figuring out. Right. It's basically just a container that allows me to combine my documentary and my performance practice. Right, because a few, a, a few of the projects you're working on now are called performed, you're, you're summing them up as performed documentary, and I think that's a really interesting phrase. I'd not heard it before, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you could create it or maybe it, it's pre-existing, but it's definitely an interesting one to me. I guess I feel like that might be the, the way that my, my, my work eventually ends up in that I find myself doing more stuff about true storytelling. I, I mean, I started off doing fiction and now I'm, I'm, I, I still do fiction. I still love fiction. I'm not, not going to leave it, but I'm doing a lot more stuff about me and reality and journalism and like this show, like this is a documentary. Some of these episodes are even more documentary than just a conversation. 
So I'm interested that that other people are going in that direction too. It's always nice to see that you're not alone in these journeys into the arts, right? You've come up with that just to describe this mixture of of, of mediums, or yes. Is, or is it kind of something to do with the tone or the style of it? I think it's it's all of those things. <clears throat> I think it's partly that it's acknowledging that most of my work starts with interviews, and I never really know how I'm going to use the interviews when I start. I just I just know that I have an idea about something. Usually there are a lot of conversations, which are kind of casual interviews in a way without me realizing. Then I realize I'm having conversations about the same theme with a lot of people that I sort of acknowledge to myself, okay, you want to make a piece about X. And then I start interviewing people. And in that process, I discover what it is I'm getting at. But also I find that there's elements from those interviews I want to keep in the finished work. And sometimes that's just voiceover sometimes it's just taking an idea and referring to it sometimes it's actually direct video from from that interview with that person so in in how i became myself it kind of it's as if if you took a if you took like a, a screen documentary but the bits where you'd have talking heads with someone to camera are are me in the live space right. so sometimes i'm referring to someone and then you will see video interview of that person sometimes i'm doing something else in the space while you're hearing interview from that person sometimes i'm actually having a conversation with the video or with the audio so it's just kind of a way of taking that that documentary film or video medium and then finding different ways to twist it and interplay with the with the live space and right. with me in the live space Right, so there's kind of a, almost like a what they call a verbatim theater element to it, right? Where you're yes. recreating what people have said, but you're recreating it on stage rather than them being played. Yes, because the other thing is that I do I do lots of video diaries along along the way, and that's actually what informs script. And in a funny way, I suppose Spark kind of the reason I came to Spark in the first place sort of links the beginning of that process because one of the things that I found working on the antisocial network. Is I don't know. I mean, I, I was working with with um, Leslie Ewan, who's a who's a theater director, and she really pushed me hard to kind of get away from a certain received delivery that happens a lot in spoken word, like a, this this sort of spoken word voice that is very very pervasive in that community right. internationally. I, I would even say. Yeah, sure. And there's something just about getting to a place where you're just just speaking, you know, right. which which you would think is really easy, but I think also for a lot of performers, they can lose touch with that centered part of themselves, especially in spoken word for, for whatever reason. And so that piece was very much about, okay, this is coming from this written text, but how do we kind of remove ourselves from that so I don't feel like I always have to hit the same points and also hit the same rhythms. And then I want to take that a step further with how I became myself, so there is no script. I mean, there is a script in the sense it's very tightly outlined and the cue lines for the tech, of course, are essential that I say more or less the same. But in terms of what I say, it's just outlined. It's more like a storytelling or I guess a stand-up set in right. a way. And I think probably the first time I went to Spark had to do with me pushing myself to be comfortable with that, just straight talking on stage. Because I had found, I had found that... Um, I was able to perform with this persona. I was able to perform if I rehearsed my material to death. 
but the, I was so stuck to, but it has to be these words that I've written because I was a writer before I was a performer and that was the bit that I trusted in. So leaving that behind and just going, no, I decided this is the story that I want to tell and these are the beats that are important. But most importantly, I just want it to be a conversation with, with an audience. I'll be an okay one-sided conversation with the audience, but to have the sense that it has that... Right that resonance, that, that feeling as if I'm just talking to someone in a room. That's yeah. really no, I'm, important. I'm, 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 yeah, I, I, I really relate to that. And almost though, I'm, I'm, I'm now in a situation where I've been doing Spark for so many years now and I've been sort of learning to host and learning to be myself and be comfortable with my kind of nervy, neurotic persona on stage and be like comfortable with that. And so suddenly once you're comfortable in that, people relate to it. Like that's been a real revelation for me. I can be awkward and people can enjoy it if I'm enjoying it too. But now I'm making a show this year and I, I'm having to now think about how to go back the other way, like how to, to go from just being someone who turns up and has a general idea and does it to being able to craft something that's going to fit exactly into 50 minutes and probably have the same, you know, yeah, definitely have the same words every night, even though I'm really terrible at learning lines because I, I don't want to get it wrong because it's all about feminism and stuff like that. Whereas if I, if I say the wrong word in the wrong sentence, I'm going to have a completely different meaning than what I want and stuff like that which is different from when you're telling a story just straightforwardly about your life. So it's, it's weird moving between, yeah, moving from one to the other and then going, oh, hang on now, I've got to go back a little bit the other way. It's always like finding this balance. And what you've been saying about name and identity, I've got a kind of a strange relationship with the idea of names because I got given a nickname in school and this nickname became like, you know, a, an oppressive word right it was basically used by everyone it was very kind of like what I always say is my, the nickname went viral you know it was like any kid no matter if they were little than me bigger than me whatever would always be shouting that name at me wherever I went and then I sort of had this moment in sixth form where I sort of said to everybody this name you've all been using you know if you're my friend you have to call me Dave you know that has to happen and I think that because I've re reclaimed my name right I don't want to, I don't want to, it feels very integral to who I am. I wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to give it back. But when I reclaimed my name, I reclaimed it as Dave, not as David, right? So when anyone calls me David, it's weird. And at the moment, people keep billing me as David, which is really frustrating me because I'm like, no, if, 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 if who I am is Dave, which is how I feel, who I am on stage is most definitely Dave. Like that, that, that that's like, it's even more Dave than, than me when mm. I'm, you know, so it has to be Dave and I'm getting really, like, I don't want to look like an awkward person, like sending these emails saying, um, could you, uh, like, I know Dave and David are the same name, but you know, but I, you know, I am becoming that person because it's, it's getting to me. But it's not your name for this thing. It's like, I, and I, and I mean, this, I, I also, of course, I understand because I have such an intimate relationship with names because of this process that I've been on for the last, I don't even know anymore, like six years or something. Yeah, but then I see it from all of these sites, right? Because like, as, as somebody who hosts nights, I have to say everyone's names, right? And I don't always know how to pronounce them. And then there's all of these complications of like, am I mispronouncing names? Because like, there's all sorts of reasons you might, for example, there's racial reasons why like you might be like 
am I not addressing my white privilege enough to like, am I saying, you know, is it ignorance that's making me mispronounce uh, ethnic, in inverted commas, names? I don't think it is, because I fuck up, like, all of the names. Like, I fuck up Scottish names all the time, right? So, but, 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 it, but, it, but they don't feel that way. People don't feel that way. I always stumble over words, right? It's something that I'm always, uh, I, I do, and I think that's, like, naturally a thing that I do. But I also think that... I can understand why people are sick to death of their names being the thing that always they have to have these stupid conversations about, right? So it's just, it's really complicated. Like, your name is something that you relate to, but then you have to think about how other people, like where they're coming from when they're using your name. I mean, I can, it's a really good topic to be making art about. So, it, like, is your surname your name then? Or your second name? I didn't see, see the word surname is a problematic <laughs> word, right? Uh, in German, it's familiarname, a family name. Which yeah, I think family name seems... is what you're supposed to say in this country too. Now. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I see that for me seems sounds like weird English to say family name somehow. But yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it, it's to it's it, it's to denote that it it doesn't necessarily come from the patriarchal line that, mm. that your family may have a double barrel name or you may have a different. You may I don't know if there's any any cultures that have matriarchal passing of of, of names, but. They may be in so whatever. I mean, yeah, like your last name's a weird one because it's kind of you're branded with your family. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't necessarily want to be branded with my family. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's funny. I've, I, yeah, I've because I'm so like so legally I'm Paula Quinn, good solid Irish name, <laughs> um, which is also a really frustrating one with the spelling because it's Quinn one N. And that's also like, it's just, it's just an anomaly. Like you don't find Quinns with one end. So I, you know, but I love my parents. I was just fated to always have my name misspelled. Um, yeah, Paula Quinn, Paula Quinn. And then Paula Varjek is my artist name. It's just the name everyone, everyone knows me by. I did think about going the full nine yards and having it legally changed to Paula Varjek. But I kind of like that that's my artist name and I wanted to make some kind of concession to my parents that if yeah. I was going to legally change my name at least I should keep my dad's name somehow and actually it's totally worked out because like in, in the last year for example I, I did some work I was doing some project managing freelance just for a bit of extra money and it felt really weird to be Paul Varjak for this project manager position because it's sort of like I still have the sense of even though that's just my name now Paula Varjak, like the the full first and last feels like it's like a marquee persona artist in my head a bit. And like Paula Varjak is not a project manager for an animation company. That just doesn't make sense. She just wouldn't do that. It's like no, and Paul Quinn, yeah, totally. So so it's it's weird. I still kind of hold on to these these gradients of distinctions right somehow but i mean it's like what you say like when you say oh a good irish name right all of these like names they they they, they transmit so much communication about in theory where somebody comes from in theory who they are and then that kind of comes into conflict with like who they actually are what i mean i know that like in my family there's a lot of like if you get given a name by somebody that you fall out with I think then sometimes people want to change their name. Like my mum changed her name to her middle name rather than her first name. My, my, my little sister doesn't like her own name for complicated reasons. I think they're nothing to do with the words. They're to do with their interpersonal relationships with the people who gave them their names. You know, it's, it's really a complicated business names. Like when you chose your name, like your new name, like where did that come from? Or would that be a spoiler for your show? Um... <laughs> 
Yeah, maybe it's a maybe it's a bit of a spoiler. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a spoiler for the show, so maybe I won't go into that. Cool. It's the information is probably out there, I think. Just because I like my my web my web uh what do you say? Is it like footprint or fingerprint? Like yeah. the mark of me on the web is is large enough that probably all the information is out there, but maybe right. it's good to keep it fragmented. Sure. No, I, I get that, and I'm I'm always in that problem. I put so much out there that you know, yeah, like I'm I'm giving spoilers all the time to stuff that I don't realize I'm gonna do in in a few years time. Before we actually started recording, we were talking about the problem of having uh, no internal monologue, particularly like you speak everything, and I I'm the same. So I'm trying to like keep that in mind when talking about your art, so that so that we won't have to cut anything. So another sort of area that you're looking into at the moment with your art is is literally how it's funded, how we how we as artists can afford to be artists, right? Because you're doing a show called Show Me The Money. Where are you at with that? I mean, it's, it's a very new project, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like super new. Like I, I've, I had, I've had a lot of conversations and I've done a lot of reading and I've started to listen to podcasts a bit. Oh yeah, and I've been emailing a lot with my dad, which, which doesn't sound relevant, but he's an economist. So I think it's quite relevant. Right. And mainly just kind of trying to establish is is this something I want to make a show about? Which I've gone, yes. And is this something that other artists are interested in? Very much so at the moment, yeah. it seems like. So yeah, so really now it's just been about, which <laughs> is very keeping with, with the themes, trying to find like an initiative or funding or resources or space to support me in the early stages of development. And I think very soon I'm going to start interviews with people around yeah. Some of, the, some of the things that I want to explore, like application writing, how artists feel about where the money comes from to fund their work, how they feel about doing other jobs or not doing other jobs, how they present, whether they are making a living or not making a living. To this, Literally this morning, a new theme came up because a friend of mine sent me some clips around the role of art schools. Because and I hadn't even thought about that before and how systemic this issue is around economic class and privilege related to who makes art and for who and why right because art schools are so expensive and so that also dictates who is making work but then the ironic thing about that is the percentage of people who are actually working artists uh is is very small out of people who actually go to art school i think it's like 10 percent in the u.s or something so then you kind of go why why do we go to art school why are they so expensive is it just a way for artists to make money while making their art? It's certainly, when I was in school most most recently, I kind of left thinking, oh, this is a really great gig if you have like a practice as a performance artist, which isn't very commercial, to, you know, teach at a college level. And that's a great job, but I wonder, is that is that the thing that we're, that we're aiming for? <sighs> You know, there's the old joke in spoken word always about what like every at. single spoken word artist I know basically makes a living from from workshops, not from performing. Every single one, and then you kind of think, yeah, are we? And I do too. And I actually, I really love facilitating. But you kind of go, are we just teaching creative writing to young people so they can teach creative writing? I, yeah, I don't yeah. know. No, that is a that a, whole stream may have made no sense. No, I don't no, no. Know it's, how... a, it's a legitimate question. I mean, that that's it's true. We're, we're, a lot of people I know in the arts, yeah, exactly that model. Like we're doing workshops, or I mean, I, I do training 
<clears throat> at the moment I've been doing training with with adults, but it's still the same principle. Like the all the creative stuff I'm doing, I don't get paid for. It's the it's the it's the, the telling other people how to create things stuff that I do get paid for. I mean, but there is a question like, should we get paid at all? Like I know that this is a, not a popular view, and it certainly isn't my practical view. In that I think, obviously, in the world we live in everybody's got to do what they can to get paid you can't make art unless you have time to do so so you need to make some money from it ideally and so that's what I want personally and that's what I want for all the artists I know and I want to pay artists you know when I can uh, as a producer because that's fair but (laughs) ultimately I don't really believe in art being something that has a price in the in both set, like in the in the most negative sense, of the word uh, when you say that all artists are like, are you saying my stuff doesn't doesn't have any value? Well, yeah, I don't think anything really particularly any words any any images have particularly more value than than others necessarily. But but on the other side of it, I think their it's it's its value is so high that how can you quantify it? Like there's there's these two elements of art that I think like I totally understand why people are like well why should I pay you to have fun when I gotta go to a job that I hate and I totally get why people feel that way but then I also feel like art should be free because everyone should experience it and it shouldn't like cost audiences any money and it shouldn't cost uh, like it just it shouldn't cost it should be valued like in a different way but we're in the system we're in so that's all of those ideals and are not my practical way of, of viewing the world. But on a philosophical level, and it always pisses, well, not always, but it often pisses off other artists, particularly when I'm like, because I don't believe in copyright, for example. That is a really unpopular view to have amongst artists. Um, and every time I say it, people feel like I'm tr- personally trying to attack them and that I don't have my own stuff, which I'm saying I don't believe that should have copyright on and people should be able to use it however they like. But what do you mean mean when you say say you don't believe in copyright? Well, I think everything is, how can you copyright words and images and all of these things? Like, everything's... Like, there's that video series um, that I always recommend people watching called Everything's a Remix, right? Which is about how... I've seen it, yeah. Yeah, right. And so uh, since everything is a remix, it seems very, very hard for me to say, well... You, you, like I think financial copyright is is really hard because it, it it restricts who can use material. It 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 it, it it's mess it messed up hip hop for a while. Like these the attitudes to copyright. So there's that side of things. But even intellectual copyright, who owns anything? I I feel like. I'm always quoting the Ewan McCall song called Manchester Rambler, which which is all about going walking and and uh, being told he's not allowed to walk on the land because the gamekeeper wants to have his grouse on there. And he, he says, no man has the right to own mountains as much as the deep ocean bed. And I feel like that about words. I feel like that about music. I feel like that about everything. Like, who owns anything? Like, maybe homes is about the only thing. Like, I can see how we all need a place that we don't have other people bothering us, right? So I can see a, a reason to request that people don't bother you and that we have no social agreement on that. But ownership is a... I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm... I kind of think all property's theft, you know. That's the problem. But at the same time, I don't want to 
give my property to other people. So I'm, I'm aware that there's a hideous contradiction but right in the center of my Yeah, but I mean, also, I mean, what do you do about the fact? Because, I, I mean, you know, I think, I think things like Creative Commons are really interesting because right. there's, there's a difference between saying, you know, why, why can't we create an open source culture where we can just share ideas and share art forms and remix? But even that, it's like, why can't that involve just checking in with each other and looking how things are used in context. Like for me, for example, I don't particularly want my image or my words or I don't know, like a video clip I make to be used in context with certain ideas, certain causes, or I don't want it to be used for free by someone in a way that they're then going to make lots of money. I don't want someone to go into, it's not like I have an amazing Instagram account, but for example, it's like, I, I, if everything is just like free and anyone can do anything, then an advertising firm can just take image from my Instagram account, whack it on a billboard and, you know, basically save the money that they would pay someone for designing it. Like that's not right. No, and I hate that. And, but, but how I can, how I square that view is that obviously I don't think that, and this is where it brings us back to where we sort of jumped off from of, of like how, how we pay for, for the arts. So if the person using that billboard is making a lot of money out of your art, well, I don't kind of, I kind of feel like no one should be allowed to make money out of art in some ways. Allowed is a problematic word. I'm an anarchist, so I think we should collectively come up with decisions together. So I'm all for an open source culture, kind of like what you're talking about. And I I agree that within the, the culture we've got, I don't, I mean, certainly I don't want my work used by businesses or by ideologues that I don't agree with, right? So of course I don't want that to happen, but I guess it's kind of where I come from is like, it's a, it's a, it's like the free speech issue. I, I don't want loads of people to say loads of stuff that they say, but because of the fact that I think that the danger of closing down free speech is more than uh, allowing us to speak, I have to accept that terrible things will happen as a result of people having free speech Mm -hmm. and it's the same with my attitude to copyright it's not like a utopian idea I accept that terrible things happen potentially as a result of having a no property attitude it's just on balance my view is it's better for everyone to share than it is and to accept that sometimes people will be terrible in the way that they approach that sharing but then what's wrong with the idea of, of licensing you know what's wrong simply with the idea of if i'm a company that can afford to pay you for an image for a bit of a track because i'm going to use it in whatever campaign then i'm going to pay you the creator for that i mean that's that seems totally reasonable but then what if somebody who can't afford to it's, that's the thing it's, it's like there's somebody who can't afford to pay that and there's somebody who can but then I think the answer is not saying abolish copyright I think it's about saying I mean that's I don't know I don't, I'm not really well versed with creative commons but what I understand about it is it's about everyone kind of who's part of it setting a license for themselves right. that says and I use gonna, creative commons that's right so if you're going to use this in X way and it doesn't involve money and it's for this kind of reach then fine, I just want to know about it. Or if you're going to use it, X. Or if you're going to use it for money, then it's... And I think that that just seems like the best way forward. So within the system, I absolutely agree. Like within what we have now, I think Creative Commons is the way forward. Artists should use it. I, I also think that there's a lot of privilege in saying you're against copyright that I need to like acknowledge that that, that it's all very well for like uh, middle class white, uh, white boys to, to go, yeah, I don't believe in copyright. But there's people who 
can't like you need to make money to live and if you and, and often middle class white boys are stealing content well stealing is a complicated word mm. but are taking content from other people and making money out of it this is often happening and those people are often from marginalized groups and so there is a problem in within that mm. even though i don't believe that words should be restricted that we shouldn't be able to share things freely and ideas shouldn't be able to morph from one community to another community i do understand the concerns of a marginalized community saying you guys are all profiting from an idea that we created and we're not getting any of that pie i totally get that and it is complicated so this mm. is the thing the reason everyone goes kind of a little bit nuts when I say, I don't know, you're, you're not, so I'm saying please, <laughs> but with copyright is because of all of these masses of contradictions. Because when you say, I, I don't ag- agree with copyright as an absolute say- sentence, it's ridiculous because absolute sentences are ridiculous. But in general, I, I'm suspicious of copyright because of who controls it. So I'm not against licensing necessarily as a, a way of us organising things. But I would rather that the artists had control over that licensing if anyone has control over it. But the other thing I think is that the people who either can't afford or can't stomach the legalese involved with getting access to certain pieces of whatever, say video, image content, are just using it and nicking it anyways. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, like the number of flyers that I've seen even for kind of quite major clubs in London over the years that have literally just kind of taken, especially ever since, you know, the internet made it possible to just take pretty much wherever you want online and right. bung it on a flyer. It's like, you've not got a license to use that image of Missy Elliott, especially for like a queer gay night. I'm guessing, I'm pretty sure, you know, right. that happens all the time. And the same thing with video stuff. I think most people, most people just don't even worry about it. It's right. under the radar. I think, I think it's changed with YouTube now a bit because especially like GEMA in Germany is like a whole other thing. Like James and I make these these um, parody film trailers. I don't know if you've seen them, but some of them can't be seen in Germany because GEMA is set up in such a way because of the soundtracks and da-da-da. So there's all kinds of stuff there. But, but generally, I think people use content the way they want to right. anyways, even with all these laws... No, sure. Place, like, but that's why I'm sus- suspicious of the it's laws. More, it's more, I think it's just like, if, if, I, if I go out and I say hypothetically with a friend, make a series of film trailers that use the actual soundtracks, maybe in a parallel universe that doesn't exist, and then I try to make money somehow off those film trailers, and things get dicey. But if they're just on a hypothetical video sharing site like YouTube, then it's probably... Under yeah. the radar, or YouTube does something really ingenious and goes, "Okay, we just recognize a lot of people are using music that doesn't belong to them. So rather than butting heads with every single one of them, which they tried and didn't work, we're going to figure out this blanket license. So it's just going to meta tag yeah. it and say, buy the soundtrack.' Right, iTunes. it becomes an advert for it. Right? Fine, yeah, but it's yeah. like fine. I'd rather do that. I, all I care about is I just want to be able to use use the track. You know, I'm not trying to make money out of it. In this, in this form, I'm using this because I'm making a specific reference. It's satire, and it's most effective if I'm using the original music. In the theory, film. though, in copyright law, we should be able to justify most uses of art in, 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 this, in this way. That in theory, if you make a new piece of art from other pieces of art, in theory, you're allowed to do that. But in practice, 
that's the question. Like, I guess I, my, my biggest concern with copyright is who controls it. If we can democratise our society in an, in an actual way rather than in a, in a name-only way, then I, I feel like, yeah, I could probably get behind copyright. Originally, it was created for really good reasons. That's one of the things that I think those videos do really well in, in, in Everything's a Remix. It's, it's where we're at now with copyright from the legitimate reasons why people came up with it, like people own stuff for 50 years after they're dead or in, like, even longer. It goes to their children. What's that about? Like, like all of these things, is it, those are the kind of, areas I guess where I really come up against copyright I'm glad that you gave me this opportunity to show that I'm a bit more nuanced than everybody <laughs> thinks I am when I state things absolutely on Facebook or whatever but I feel like now I'm taking up too much of your time with my my uh, ridiculous <laughs> copyright issues so those are the two big projects that you're currently going and working on like how you fund yourself and who you are, I guess, mm -hmm. <laughs> the main things you're looking at. But even even I think, you know, I've been, because oh, I've been working on, on, on the website with my friend Ben, I've been really obsessing over the about page, which I still feel like I haven't quite gotten right. But it's, it's the like, how do you, how do you come up with the one sentence that says, uh, you know, my work is about right. X, you know, right. like I read an interview with Miranda July, late last year and she said something like her work is about our desire to connect and our failure sometimes to do so and I was like oh yes you know like right. she makes she's a performance artist and she makes films and she writes books she's, she's, she's she wrote one of my favorite books of all time no one belongs here more than you I love it but she's but this is totally right it's like now I'm a fan of her work that one sentence encapsulates every single thing that she does and I I don't I still don't think I've quite worked it out for me yet but I think along the lines of identity what I've realized is with this new show show me the money it's also kind of powered by identity because I think I think part of the reason I'm interested in looking at the economics of an artist you know how we survive as artists is because there's something about how as artists our identity as artists how we perceive ourselves and also how we're perceived as artists has a lot to do with whether or not we make a living from our work right so that's why the question of yeah, no what do you do makes people really stressed because as soon as you say i'm an artist then the next question is always oh wow do you make a living from that and you know if the answer is yes then the person is really really impressed and if the answer is no, and it doesn't even matter what the other thing is. It doesn't matter that you do another job that's only a couple days a week, or it doesn't matter if you know you worked for years. All that matters is if your answer is not, yes, I live completely from my art, especially I feel in the UK and especially in London, suddenly you are less than an artist, which is why a lot of people, I think, lie or kind of create a sort of smoke and mirrors around the other income streams. Whether, and, and I mean the full everything, like it could be the other job, it could also be being on the dole, it could be financial privilege through parents, through partners, uh, through inheritance, whatever. All that are constantly in the constellation of everyone we know yeah. making work. And none of that I think is spoken about with real transparency. The same thing with like funding, it's like the amount of work and energy and effort, the number of times you have to apply for something the, the amount of funding that you actually get versus the amount of self-funding you do, right. even if that's time and resources right. and favors. So actually, in a weird way, it's another identity project. I guess economics came into it because I realized this is this real key component around 
whether or not someone identifies or feels confident identifying as an artist or whether other people confidently say like, oh yeah, they're, they're a real artist right. because they and make a living the, from their work. The reason that people do that though, of having those smoke and mirror, and I totally agree with everything that you said really there with that like analysis of it and it rings true with my, myself and people I know. But the reason that people do that smoke and mirrors is, is, is exactly what you said at the beginning of like, you're not taken seriously unless you make money. So it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You have to present yourself as making money for somebody to pay you money. And so it, 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 that's a, a real, I don't know, that's been a surprise to me because I've suddenly gone freelance. I've gone to a point where I am, in theory, generally making money from stuff related to my art in some way and my natural way of being is pretty transparent and open so that's the, the the way I'm choosing to go on that journey but because I have been making money from my art in inverted commas people start taking my art more seriously it totally is a self-fulfilling prophecy I don't know if that's a healthy thing for the arts for, for us to have to be at a certain level unless you get to the first step you're not even allowed to go up the stairs you know, it's like fake it till you make it right it? fake it yeah fake it till you make it it's the yeah, the way I should have said it. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird... I don't know, I'm still... And I'm still figuring it out. But actually, you know, one, one thing that was a really important thing to say, because I, I, I find appropriation of other work interesting, which is why I guess I find copyright, intellectual copyright, a bit interesting. But that that's, that's not really so much a point for me, and it's definitely not something I'm going to be looking at the show. But I think it related to this idea of does art have a you know, financial value? Should artists get paid? Like the thing that gets me frustrated about that question is everything else in the constellation around culture involves money. So if, for example, you know, in Berlin, for, for yeah, example, people would always say, oh, you know, you, you get really spoiled. You can pretty much go to anything for free or for very, very little money. So if something is even like four or five euros, like I don't even know what it is, like two pounds, 50 or something ridiculous. People would be like, ah, you know, it's. It's like two euros fifty, so why don't we just go? Because there's a million other places you can go where it's just it's just donation or like it's nothing or or whatever. And and then people will say, oh, but you know, art should just be for the love of making work. Blah, blah, blah. But actually, it's like you know, the space that you're in, the landlord is not giving that space no, no, yeah. for like the love. The beers that you're buying over the counter, you know, you're paying that money to the bar. They're not giving you the beers. Like, everything else, you know, the place that you live, like, you're still paying rent. Everything else is about money. Like, that artist who is taking the time to create that piece of work, perform for you, everything else in their life, how do they pay their bills, how they survive, what they do afterwards. Even just, like, buying, like, a, a drink. Like, it's not even about getting drunk, but it's like, I'm a singer or I'm using my voice. So I'm probably going to need at least two drinks over the course of a night. Maybe right. the promoter wants me to stay there the whole evening because it's bad form to only be there for your set. Maybe I can't do other work if I'm performing in those contexts. So it's like yeah, yeah. everything else is about money. So for me, I think it's kind of insulting to then be like, oh, but then, you know, an artist should just make work for the love of, right. of making work. It, it just doesn't add up. On the other hand, I think what I'll, what I'll say as a addendum to that is I also think if you're going to be a professional, then you have to be professional and you have to take your work seriously and you have to put in time and you have to devote to your craft and it has to be something that you're working at and, and constantly training. If, if I think about the way I, I spend money within my work, it, it, would, it would just make me be really depressed because right. I spend so much time going to see other performances 
other exhibitions, storytelling shows. I regularly go into workshops of other people, but I feel like that's feeding my practice and I have to do that to continue to be relevant, not just to others, but to myself. But all that takes money right. too, you know? But they got us over a barrel in this respect, right? Because we don't make art because we want to make money. That's not why we do it. That's why we get screwed over because people will work for free, will continue to work for free because we, we, we want to make the work, right? And so it kind of puts us in this awkward position where if any of us work for free, then we're kind of doing everybody else a disservice. But at the same time, if you don't work for free, at least like with journalism, like with lots of careers, if you don't work for free in the current model we've got, you can't even, you can't even start. It's, it's a really complicated situation. If it wasn't clear earlier on, what you said then is, is entirely what I agree with in that nothing that we have in our society is necessarily of value. When I said, I can see how someone's like, you're having fun, and I'm doing a shit job, right? Sure, but that shit job's probably not valuable. Like if it's working in a bar, if it's like there's every kind of work, very very few bits of work that we have are essential for us to survive. Most of it is to fuel the economy in some way, uh, like the arts does. So you're absolutely right. To stick art out somewhere completely separate from 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 finances is is, is absurd. But you but you're totally right about the fact. That I think making work is a kind of compulsion. I think there's <laughs> there's no way around that. Yeah. And that and that's where that's where the issue lies because people will continue. And it's it's not just about the fact that artists will continue to make and perform and create regardless of whether they're, they're paid or not. But it also has to do with the price other people are willing to put on the work that they see and they appreciate. You know, like Dan and I, we have a thing about producing events that involve bills of lots of lots of people. Right, me too. This and, is my problem too. And, and that makes it, you know, and it's, and it's really important to underline this too because I, you know, I, I'm really frustrated about the fact that I have a series of very successful shows with Dan that I produce with, with really talented artists performing and we can't, you know, we can't pay people properly right. because if you're going to have, if you're going to have like 10 people yeah. on the bill and you know that an audience is not going to pay, you know, already even like seven, eight pounds, it's a bit like, oh, some people are like more than eight pounds and it's kind of too much. And it's kind of the ironic thing is, you know, we put on events. So for us, we're like, oh, well, actually, the fact that this ticket is, say, 20 pounds, but it's it's a five-piece band, but there's like 10 acts on the bill. It seems like a lot, but when you break it down, actually, it's nothing. That's not what people think. They're just no. like, this is a ticket for one evening event. Do I know these artists or not? How big are their names? Which really just translates to... Have they been on television or not? Are they, you know, connected to film or not? And if not, you could have a hundred people on the bill, and anything over eight pounds is still too much. Most people, even like the most educated audience member who likes going, and by educated I just mean who's aware of what it takes to put on an event, will still be a bit like mm, that. Kind of seems like a lot right. of money. You and know, I've, I've heard like because I put on a, a, a show, Side Up Tragedy, which you you've done yourself and you'll, you'll know from that that I can't always afford to pay people. I have 10 acts like as a standard and it's, and pe people are always saying to me have less acts right and, and, and that's sort of like I'm reluctant to do that because it's 
I, the experience that I want to give people, I am being successful in creating. It's just like like if I took if I have less acts, then it's going to be not as good a product, right? And so it's it's uh, it's it's trying to balance those things. I mean, now I'm just about getting to a point where I can pay people, but then there's paying people and there's paying people, isn't there? There's paying people a token gesture which makes them feel valued, but doesn't really cover necessarily even their costs to get there is that paying them i mean it's 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 just a, a really murky complicated series of decisions that you have to make where you're always weighing up your ethics versus you know versus other people's needs and your needs and all of these things now i'm at a point where you know i'm i'm one of the artists i want to pay for my nights now i'm never going to take anything that isn't an even split with acts but now it's not even just them i'm trying to pay like it's also me now it matters because I haven't got a day job, mm. and it is it is a, a it is frustrating and complicated to turn do. And I would say, as an aside to that, if you charge expensive entrance prices, whilst you can break it down and see how that's perfectly reasonable, if people can't afford to pay that price, then they can't come. So either you get no audience, or you get an audience who has a certain level of financial ability mm. and then you are, are discriminating against the people I really want to speak to in my art <laughs> yeah no it's, it's 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 really it's really difficult I yeah like I had this when I I did like a work and development showing of of how I became myself at, at, at Chelsea Theatre last year and the tickets were I think they were like 11 or 12 pounds which is in all fairness totally reasonable it's for, really cheap the for a theatre right. ticket but you know I I and and you know there's like and there are more people to be paid and and covered you know there's public liability insurance and there and there's tech staff I had two people who were who were teching I hired video monitors that cost me the better part of like two hundred pounds for those performances but like I was still really nervous because I knew I knew that because of that ticket price that immediately precludes who was going to come right. to see that show and yeah. that's really. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's it's really complex yeah. because you look into paying what you can and stuff. But even that, I think, if you look at Free Friend, that's really interesting as well. Because when you sort of say to people, okay, well, pay what you can, pay what you like. At least from what I know, unless you're selling a book or trying to figure out some other giveaway, the average per person is still about two quid, which is like nothing. When you think about how expensive it is, even just to take yourself to the fringe right. for like a week. Right. Like doing doing a show every day for that week and having if you're lucky if you're very lucky an audience of upwards of twenty people who are paying too quick it is it is nothing and that's when it happens when you go oh but you know because I think the bizarre thing is if you don't put a value then it suddenly is devalued and has right. no value at all that's definitely been something I've found is that if you say that's why I would never right. do a free gig I mean I'm really I'm really hardcore about that if anyone ever approaches me. To put on something and say even the venue, for example, is like, oh, but, you know, we'll give you money to run the event. So you don't need the money from the door, per se. I'm still always like, even if it's just like one or two pounds, like I I refuse to do something with with no entry. Because then even just the decision to go, oh, am I going to pay two pounds to walk into the space makes you go, do I actually want to be in the space and do I care about what's happening here? We had... 
I mean, last year's stand-up tragedy, when we came back from Edinburgh, we had two very successful London shows. Like, we had really great audiences, really big audiences, really good... I mean, it's always a really good quality of performance, but they were really big audiences, so I was really pleased. We did one of them was in a venue that didn't cost us anything to, ha- to, to put the show on, so we made it pay what you like. The other one had to be our usual £5 in advance, £7 on the door, because the venue takes a cut. And both of them had similar numbers of attendance, but I could only pay all my acts £10 from the pay what you like one, whereas the much more expensive one, I could pay everyone 25 quid, right? Mm. And, and that's, that's, it doesn't make sense in some ways, because you're like, but, but it's weird. If you charge a lot of money, people will pay it. Whereas if you charge cheap, they don't like it at all. And it's weird because as an audience member, I like it when things are cheaper. I like to be able to pay less. But somehow it devalues the art. It's yeah, of course, because I think you just sort of go, I don't know, you know, like on the weekend for a friend's birthday, I went to see this immersive theatre reworking of Grimm's Tales, the barge house by the Oxo Tower. And it's £35. And that was on the group discount. So it was £45 otherwise. Right. And it was... It was okay, but it wasn't, like, for me, it, it wasn't £45 right. theater ticket. And you've got audiences, like, easily, because they had parallel performances at the same time. There could have been 250 or 300 people there paying that. That's just fine, because it's, like, yeah. this big build, heavily marketed South Bank show, Yeah, you know? While as people balk about paying... I don't know, it's your audience as well, isn't it? Because the theatre audience will just accept that's what that costs. And I guess like a certain level stand-up comedy also, they kind of expect, oh, it's like 15... I'm sure so a theatre must be around 15 quid for stand-up, you know? But I think in this whole sort of spoken word storytelling scene, like eight is really this like ceiling. You need to be doing like this really special right because you event. can because you can mess it up the other way the first year of silent tragedy i did it in the leicester square theater and there we had to have higher charges and, right, right. and, and it was much harder to get an audience so it's, it's like the, you have to go with that sweet spot like you say in seven eight pounds five to eight pounds mm-hmm. i guess is the, the sweet spot you, you lose either audience or money don't you and so it's, but i do think i do think it's really important you know and it's difficult because and you told, I'm sure you appreciate this as a performer. Sometimes I get really anxious about the fact that we're not able to pay people properly because we're doing, you know, these these big bill shows. But then the ironic thing is, even with Dan and I doing shows that have really good numbers, by the time we've gotten on a good night, like, you know, a few rounds of drinks for everyone, maybe paid for the flyers, and then, you know, Hackney Attic takes his cut or whatever venue, that's kind of it like you know we're we've broken even just on the last year of of doing events right that's really depressing you know i don't really know what to what to say about that but that's just how it is but but i do think promoters have responsibility as soon as they're taking money at the door to tell artists why they're not Right. Paying them if they're if they're not. I don't I mean, mean that's my attitude. Just full full disclosure. Like be absolutely. There are a lot clear. of events. There are a lot of events, and I have a big issue with this. I think it's not cool when you're taking money at the door. You're not giving artists drinks. You're not giving them guest list places. I mean, this is like the worst of worst, but it's super common. Like it happens all the time, yeah. and 
it's really important as artists that you check in and say, okay, so right, so where's the money on the door going? And I also think it's important as a promoter. It's like, I totally understand. If you say, here's a deal, the venue hire is X, I'm paying for someone to film, blah, 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 flyer cost, this is a start. Like, that's totally cool. But to just kind of, I don't know. I think, I personally think at the bare minimum, you should always offer drinks. This is something I got from Berlin. Maybe you don't get paid for a lot of gigs, but there's never a gig you're going to do where you don't at the very least get a free drink. That's just a given. And I think it's like a basic courtesy for an artist because even if you're not going to have an alcoholic drink, it's not about that. If you're going to be in a venue for a couple hours and you're using your voice, you're going to want to drink something and most likely you're going to buy a drink. And then basically not only are you working for free, but you're putting money into a bar to pay you for the privilege of giving up your time. And that's just like, don't have any time for that. Not on. No, Rant over. No, but it's a good rant to have. I mean, I think, you know, yeah, my, my, my stance is, is be straight with people. Tell them what you're doing, where the money's going. Because it's, it's, when, it's when you don't know. Like, people will assume the worst, quite understandably, because everybody... A lot of people, I'm not going to say everybody, but a lot of promoters are screwing people over. So people will assume that you are one of them. And as a promoter, I, or producer, I didn't really like the term promoter, but as a producer, like, I, I try to just be it's as clear about where the money's going. And like you say, give people other opportunities. Like I'm, I'm always like, like, I think like if you're having acts along, you've got to allow them to sell their merch, for example. Like I, I encourage that. I, I encourage people to, tr- to, to bring stuff to like get more money from the experience than I can necessarily pay them. And I do give free drinks where I can, but having had this conversation, I may make that a priority in the future. Although, you know, that's the other thing though. How much can you justify making a loss for yourself? Like, you know, I've, I've definitely been in situations where I, because I had to pay acts, I've been out of pocket, right? And mm-hmm. so you can't do shows if they make you lose money. So it's, it is a complicated, complicated thing. And I'm glad you're making a show about it. Hopefully you'll have the answer at the end of that show. <laughs> yeah, and then obviously. Then it'll be sorted and then we won't have to worry anymore. <laughs> so when I, when I finish developing the show, I'm going to set up this artist bank account. Everyone just needs to rock up. I'll give you your debit card and it'll just be fine. Yeah. If only. <laughs> so... Yeah, before we go into the last question, I was going to say as well, we've just, we've, you've touched on it just now because you, you've, you, you've said Dan and you've, you've said that you've been making stuff with him. I, I interviewed him the other day, actually, so it's, it's been really interesting. Like, I, think it'll be, I think I'll put them probably out one after the other because they're very different conversations. I'm sure. But yeah, like, so you are quite different people in lots of ways as well as working within the same area. So like, what's your take on how that came to be? Um, yeah, how, I it feels it's really weird because it's one of those things where it's it has been so organic that I'm not entirely sure but I think I think I don't remember how we first met but we first got linked actually I believe through the anti-slam because I I had started doing the event in Berlin I don't know maybe by maybe for like a few years by that point and I had done one in London with Ray Antrobus, and I wanted to do the second one. And the deal was, because Ray was super busy, I would do all of the booking and figure out the venue and get the flyer design and all that stuff. And so Ray and Paul Case, Captain of the Rent, would host it. So somehow I must have heard about 
Dan because I would have I would have booked Dan for that second London Anti Slam, but I wouldn't have met him, so I'm not. Maybe he was just recommended or something. So that was like the first time there was some link. I was not that event because that year was particularly ambitious. I was co-hosting the Berlin Anti Slam the same night as the London Anti Slam, wow. which was a terrible idea for reasons I won't go into. But anyways, so that's like how Dan and I first had some kind of connection and also through the anti-slam. And then I hosted a friend's event. And again, I don't know how he ended up on the bill. I don't know if I was like, oh yeah, I sort of have heard about this guy. Maybe I had met him by that point. And that was the first time we actually spoke to each other. And it was a really tough gig. And he was like, wow, you're doing really well hosting because it's a really tough game. I was like, oh, cheers. Thanks. And it occurred to me that I wanted to do the anti-slam again in London. And I don't know why. I think I just, I think maybe maybe that night we might have talked about the anti-slam. And I think Dan probably said that he really liked the idea. And I just really liked his energy. And Ray and I had both decided that, you know, he didn't really want to continue to do the event anymore, and I was okay with that. I had moved back to London, and I was ready to kind of run it from here. It was always an event that was co-hosted, and Dan just seemed like he was there at the right place in the right time. Right. And so I guess it kind of started with, with, that. With, with that. And the anti-slam is like really talented poets come along and be the worst poets they can be, in a nutshell. You, out of that's grown this, this new, new venture, I guess, or new ventures. There's a number of different shows that you guys are kind of doing well, together, and then there's this overarching kind of production company. Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's a new venture, which is Marjek and Simpson, which, which we like because it makes us sound like we're solicitors or estate agents or something, which we're very much not, so that's pretty funny. I like the idea that we make quite silly events with this very sort of formal, official, straight-sounding title. So first there was the anti-slam, and then from the anti-slam, we started talking about how, again, organically, it was just like, I had done a show in the past in Berlin with a friend that was like a live format talk show. Dan had totally independently had that, also had an idea about running a kind of game show format show. We were like, oh, working together, the anti-slam's going really well. Why don't we come up with another thing? And we're both like, how about a, oh, I had the idea about a game show type thing. And that gave birth to Nevermind Full Stops, which we're still figuring out. You've been one of our biggest fans and great supports, <laughs> which is giving us encouragement to go forward into our new season at the Dog Star in Brixton. Oh, cool. You're basically checking out all, all of my venues. Though. Yeah, basically, I we're, just, we're just stalking you. We're just stalking right. you. It's like, it's like you, know, you know, apparently with real estate, when a Starbucks opens, then the others are like, all right, well, now it's like, we're like, well, Dave Prickering's done that venue, so now Barjack and Simpson are <laughs> well, safe to, I was, I, I, safe to it's, go It's there. like a chain, because that's how I was with uh, Superbard used to run a night there. So I was like, ooh. Superbad runs a night there. Must be, must be good. So we had these two shows, right? But Varjik and Simpson maybe coalesced. We had sort of half spoken about, oh, maybe we should kind of make Paul and Dan more of a specific thing rather than us just sort of working together. And then when we went to Fringe last summer, because we had these two shows and it was in this one week, people were really relating to us as like, oh, Paul and Dan. Paul. Yeah, people have always talk about you guys as Paul and Dan, referring to you guys as a team before you became a team for sure. But Edinburgh really crystallized yeah, 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 that yeah, yeah. and then we got lots of bookings off the back of that and then it was like oh well it just it just made it just made sense it's like oh well we're, people are already treating us like a company so and like why not 
make something out of company. We still have to figure out some of the logistics around what type of company to register at it and stuff and set the bank account and things. But, but we had a meeting with Creative One, who's this amazing coaching firm, but specifically for the creative sector. And I was teasing him as like, oh, I feel like this is like the business equivalent of getting married and meeting the priest because we had this like four hour meeting where he really sat down with us and like figured out our, what our business plan was and like you kind of what our intentions were in this collaboration. It was super fascinating and, and great. So I feel like we've got this, this really solid foundation that we're going to produce things. Yeah. From. I'm, I'm excited to see what they are and I'm enjoying what you're doing already so it's been it's been good and like you say I've been a bit of a fanboy but it's it's in and, and, and it's which has helped us out so so much like yeah, I only well, underline it because it's like if you I don't know if you've ever done an event where you're like oh why am I even doing this just having one person where you're like oh you know you know why I'm doing it really it gives this kind of I don't tangent but sort of related like back in the day I was a massive fan of Paloma Faith before she she got signed. Uh, she was a friend of a friend. We're like to loose social network, and I and I went to every single every single gig she went to like without fail. And I really didn't know her that well. I knew her well enough that she would speak to me after a gig and say, "Oh, it's cool that you came," but I definitely wasn't one of her friends. So I was going in this like high fandom. And I remember she wrote me once back in the days of MySpace to say like, "Oh, you know, it means so much to me that you're." That you're always because right. it's kind of become this thing where it's like if you wouldn't be there, that would be super weird because yeah. you go to you go to all all <laughs> all of my gigs, and then I think I missed one of her gigs, and then and yeah, I didn't get any messages again, so I broke that. Knocking well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, red carpet events, I'm worried but... that'll happen when you move to Brixton because of the fact <laughs> that one of the reasons I've been able to be a fanboy is because it it really is a, a walk to you to to that to the Hackney attic. But I'm showing you my poem <laughs> story that I understand. I'll be sad, but I'll be like. No, I, I get, get it. it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I was going to say as well, I, one of my favourite things that I've seen on stage in the last few years was you doing the cat in the hat uh, <laughs> to, to the tune of Creep, uh, never mind the full steps. And since I've mentioned it, that'll mean that there'll be a link to this in the show notes, so people should watch it because it's great. That'll be the thing. Sometimes I'm terrified, like, that'll be the thing that I'm, that I'm known for. <laughs> right. Like, who yeah. was Paula Varjek? Oh, yeah, she's like that, like, YouTube person who's saying... I'm pretty proud of that performance, it's though. It's great, though. You properly felt it. That's why it worked, right? Because like... I'm obviously a, a, you know, former indie geek Radiohead fan. Right, and, yeah, and me too. So that, 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 that it connected with... Well, and the cat in the hat is brilliant, too. So it's like a perfect mashup. And the thing is that... It, it's how perfectly the words fit with the tune. Like, it's, it, you, you know... Until you hear it, you can't believe it, but it's, like, it's as if the cat in the hat was written, you know, to be sung to the tune of radio. I think my favourite thing about that game, um, Poem to the Tune of a Song, oh, sorry, we've now renamed it Poetry Karaoke, is that it, it, it is, it's like there's a specific look in the audience member's face that says, it's, just, it's like, it's like, oh, like, is this actually happening? It's like... <laughs> Like, I think this is really cool and really into it, but it's also really weird because right. it fits so well. It's just like, oh, did theater guys will actually collaborate with Tom York? I think the reason Full Stops is, is, has been really important to me is the anti-slam 
for me, it was like this space to challenge artists to engage with failure, like to creatively engage with failure and to be silly and to be bad, but to like revel in it and right. just be like, I'm going to do all the things I'm not supposed to do. And, it, and it's going to be so awful that it's going to be amazing because I'm going to love it so much. But the thing is, because it's my gig, because I'm either co-hosting with Dan or, or I'm the jury or I'm producing, I, I never get to be in it. So I think the thing for me in full stops so and maybe especially at like game poetry karaoke is it's like my little anti-slam. It's like my place to be an idiot, but yeah. to really love it and love being ridiculous. But it's that yeah. sense of potential failure that I enjoy about those nights as well. Like about, the, never mind this full stop. And I keep saying this to you every time I see you, so you'll be sick of this, but the audience haven't heard me say this. Um, but it's that it's challenging. It's people making, potentially making mistakes. Not everything works because it's people spontaneously trying things out. And so it's exciting because you don't know what's going to happen next as an audience member. But then it's this idea that eventually, and I don't know when that's going to be, but this, some of this material will then be taken and then crafted into the creme de la creme bits of it for me as an audience I can't wait to hear the the final cut because then I can be like wow I I heard the dangerous bit and I've seen the crafted bit and I've seen the whole I guess it's because I'm like a geek for form and process a bit well did you see did you see (laughs) I cut this little like Christmas trailer of like basically last year like the Christmas performance no I haven't seen oh I will send it to you I will send it to you because I think I think that kind of does that and that's yeah, I don't know what's happening with this podcast because now, I don't know if Dan told you, now we've got a new podcast, a new podcast coming, which actually links to similar themes about how to fail, I don't know, how to creatively engage with failure and what we can learn from failure and how to fail better, which is what it's going to be called. It's going to be called. Yeah, I mean, I guess the last question that I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? So I feel like we're sort of like moving into that area anyway, so I should probably just officially say we're there. Yeah, I think I think I think we're there. I mean, if people want to see what I'm doing, the new website is hopefully going to be up by the time this is up or in the next week. Yeah, definitely at, um, and then I would say Barjack is spelled like carjack but with a v. Um <laughs> And hopefully also soon this year, I'm going to be touring with How I Became Myself by Becoming Someone Else. And if you're listening to this and you're an artist and you would be up for being interviewed for my newest show, Show Me The Money, then please find me at Twitter and I guess Dave will put some helpful yeah, links. I put all the links on the SoundCloud page. Yay! It's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you. It's funny because you never know where a conversation is going to go, you know. And actually, because you sent me the website, I had like all of these areas I was going to go to, and like and I didn't go to half of them, but because I spent too long talking about my own opinions of copyright. <laughs> um, but it's been delightful and enjoyable, uh, nevertheless. And I should also say we're, we've been recording this. I've normally said this ages before, but uh, we're recording this in your in your flat in, in Hackney. So thank you for having me to your place and uh, to getting better acquainted with me. Uh, the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Ah, goodbye, audience. Bye, everyone. The Fail Better podcast, which Paula was talking about at the end there, and if you listen to last week's episode with Dan, we also talk a little bit about it there. That's now out. They're putting their podcast out on London Fields Radio, so I assume you can also listen to it live, but then it goes onto the London Fields Radio Mixcloud account, so you can find it there. I'll put a link to that as well on my SoundCloud page. 
Episode one features the poet Amy Aker and the comedian James Harris. So give that a listen. The next anti-slam is on the 14th of February at the Hackney Attic. It's uh, an anti-slam, anti-Valentine's special. So you should definitely go along to that if you aren't otherwise engaged. I unfortunately am because it's my 14-year anniversary. But you should definitely go. And if I wasn't anniversarising, I would certainly be there. And the next Never Mind the Full Stops will be on the 5th of March at the Dog Star in Brixton. So you should get yourself along to that. And while I'm mentioning dates that are coming up, the next stand-up tragedy is happening on the 28th of February at the Hackney Attic. That night's going to be dedicated to tragic winter. So at the end of the bleak midwinter, we will celebrate the bleakness of winter with three acts of tragedy, starting with Act One, Tragic Fairy Tales, which is going to be really great. Following that, we're going to have a guest curated act on Tragic Climate, curated by the writer and editor and really excellent person, Alice Bell. And then we're going to close up the evening with Tragic Death, where Izzy Lawrence, Jack Rook and Amy McAllister are going to be looking at the tragedy that we find in death but we're not going to end on such a bleak moment we always end stand-up tragedy with a cathartic sing-along so that should be enough to shake off the tragic cobwebs and make us feel better and then if you want to stay till late you can because we're going to have tragic music to tragically dance to into the early hours of the morning but if you don't want to stay for the tragic dancing that's cool all of the acts should be finished by about 10.30. The night starts at 7.30 and tickets are, as kind of mentioned on this show, £5 in advance and £7 on the door. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.com. .co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app, you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.